Well, this morning we are continuing through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I want to invite Kyle Nelson to come up. Uh, Kyle's going to be sharing the word with us this morning. Kyle's been a, a big part of our church over the years, uh, was our uh, navigator's uh, director at University of Northern Iowa for quite a few years here. Uh, we sent him out to Oregon State. They came back uh, the last year and a half or so, and so excited to have him back with us and uh, teaching this morning. Why don't you welcome Kyle as he comes? Thanks. I uh, got a special little word right before I walked up to the stage from somebody else in the audience, and I have learned that today is a special day. We have a birthday in the room today. Today is Paul Van Gorp's birthday. Is that right, Paul? Can you stand up so we can get a good look at you? I wondered if maybe we needed to sing happy birthday to Paul this morning. Let's do that. Before we do, we have any other birthdays in the house? Anybody want to shout anybody else out? Is today your birthday? No. You have one? It's not today, though? Okay, that's not what I'm looking for. Is it, is it your birthday today? Oh my gosh, what's your name? Brady? Brady? Brady. Grady. Okay, can we have any more? Grady? Grady, how old are you today? 24. Paul, how old are we today? 26. 26. <laughs> we got Grady and we got Paul. Uh, where's our worship leader? Jeremy, get us started. I'll do it. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday to Let's give him a round of applause. That's fantastic. Alex, thanks for the tip. <laughs> we have been going through the book of Mark. Yeah, how do you transition out of that? We've been going through the book of, of Mark the last four or five weeks or so. And as this was introduced um, a few weeks back, that we would be going through Mark, and we would be using the Discovery Bible Study questions, which maybe, are they ready up on the screen? Maybe? Hey, there they are. Okay, our Discovery Bible Study questions... Um, are these four questions. What did I discover about Jesus in this passage? What did I discover about people in this passage? What is Jesus asking of me? And who is one person that I'll share what I've learned from this passage? When I heard these, I knew they sounded familiar. Um, I played baseball growing up, a lot of baseball. In high school, I was a catcher, and I got the opportunity to catch a, a handful of really good pitchers, um, a couple, two or three of them went off to pitch in college, and a couple others went and played other positions, uh, playing college baseball. But the best pitcher by far that I ever caught for was my good friend. We were friends um, all the way growing up, uh, my friend Aaron Riesland. Um, after Aaron graduated from high school, he went on and was a, a scholarship pitcher at the University of Iowa. And the thing that made Aaron such a good pitcher was his fastball. Now, anybody can throw a fastball, but not every sophomore in high school can clock a fastball at 93 miles an hour. Uh, and that was Aaron. And I got the best view of anybody for three years of Aaron's 93 mile per hour fastball. Um, it was the kind of pitch that it's so fast, you can't really see it, but you can hear it coming. Um, one of my jobs as the, the starting varsity catcher was that 
for every game, whoever was the starting pitcher, it was my job to warm up that person before the game started. Um, so we'd kind of get on the same page and we'd get them warm and ready to go. And so when I would warm up Aaron, he had a very specific routine that he would go through getting ready for the game. And we would start out in left field. Um, and Aaron would stand on the, on the left field, um, the le- left field, what's that called? Left field line. And he would send me out into the, out in the middle of center field. So we would start close and we just kind of start getting warmed up. And um, as we'd go, Aaron would kind of signal when he was ready for me to take a couple steps back. So I'd keep walking back. And as he was getting loose, we'd get further and further and further apart. And Aaron's just ripping cannons at me across the center field. We would keep going back until he got kind of out to the limit of how far he could throw the baseball. And then at the end, he wanted three balls that he just threw 100%. Um, And you can imagine a Division I fastball pitcher compared to a push-in second-team all-conference catcher, my arm could not keep up. And so by the time we get out to the limits of his uh, range, we were so far beyond how far I could throw a baseball. And so I had the humiliating job of standing out in the middle of center field and and Aaron's launching cannons at me, and I would catch it, and then I'd have to run seven, eight, ten steps, and then chuck the ball as hard as I could to hop and maybe roll the ball to Aaron's feet. Um, I experimented with some different things because there's a limit to the size of a baseball field. So I had the choice of I either had to keep sliding from center field over into right field where there was enough room for Aaron to still throw the ball. But now I'm intermixed in with the other team on the right field line who's also warming up. So I'm chasing balls in among the opposing team that I'm about to play. And they're all watching how I cannot throw the ball anywhere close to how far Aaron can throw a baseball. Um, My other option was to stay in center field. And this happened more than a couple times where Aaron would chuck the ball well over my head, over the center field fence, out into the cornfield, I would have to then go through the fence, out, in the, out, find the ball, bring it back in, run like a little puppy to get the ball back to Aaron. The man had a cannon. Um, when we were sophomores, we played in the sub-state final game, and Aaron's fastball was on fire. And I got to watch from the first-hand view, I watched Aaron strike out the first 11 pitchers, or the first 11 batters of the game. It means we made it through three and a third innings, before any baseball player was even able to touch the ball. He had a cannon. After, after high school, Aaron went off to pitch at Iowa, and then um, after college, Aaron was a missionary in Turkey. Um, and so I was kind of tracking him over the years, um, his ministry, he and his wife's ministry, Elizabeth, we also went to high school together, tracking their ministry in Turkey. And a couple years ago, um, he and his wife moved back to the States, and he took a position with FCA, so he's an area FCA director now in Eastern Iowa. And a couple years ago, Aaron and I got to catch up back, at, uh, back in Mount Vernon was our hometown. And we got to get, kind of catch up. We hadn't seen each other in close to 10 years. And hearing about his ministry and the way God had used them um, in their ministry among people in Turkey. And he was sharing with me a tool um, that they would use in their ministry in the small group Bible study reading groups that they would have among Turkish people. And he shared with me the discovery Bible study method. And shared with me how this simple tool um, they would use to ask four questions every time that they would get together. And he shared with me the powerful ways that the Spirit of God used the Word of God to transform the lives of people by asking these four questions. Um, so it was so exciting to me when I saw that we were going to be going through this because it was not that long ago that Aaron and I had that conversation. And it's so exciting to me to be a part of how God is all over the world drawing men and women to himself. Um, and 
using the word of God to give people a clearer view of who Jesus is. And the Discovery Bible Study Method is a tool that God is using to help people see Jesus more clearly and understand who he is. So today what I want to do is look at Mark 9, 1 through 13. And I want to practice the Discovery Bible Study message and together discover a little something about the kingdom of God. So before we dive into this passage and discuss the kingdom of God, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your word uh, and the way you are using all over the world your word uh, to draw men and women out of the darkness and into the light, how you're inviting people to step out of the kingdom of darkness and to step into the kingdom of God. Um, And I thank you for uh, the power of your word and the simplicity of a tool like this that gives us an opportunity to have a little bit of a structure um, to help us to know how to look into your your word and hear what you have to say to us. Um, So this morning, would you open our eyes to see a little bit more clearly who you are Uh, and what it is that you want for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 9, 1 through 13. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we, were, that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Question number one is what did I discover about Jesus in this passage? As I've been thinking about this passage over the last uh, few weeks or so, The thing that stands out to me about Jesus is that in this passage, we learn that Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. In verse one, Jesus makes this statement that actually kind of bothered me uh, or confused me a lot as a young believer. Uh, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I didn't know how to hear this passage or to hear this, this prediction of Jesus because it seemed to me like Jesus just said he is going to come back before uh, all of these people have died. And it seems to me 2,000 years later, we're still waiting for Jesus to come back. And I guess to the best of my knowledge, none of these people are left. 
So it felt like, does this mean that his promise didn't come true? Um, That can't possibly be the way those disciples heard him make this statement because none of them were aware yet about the death and the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus. So certainly they would have heard this statement. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Certainly they would have heard this in the context of the way that they understood the kingdom of God um, and the way that they understood its coming. They would have certainly expected that someone was coming who was going to bring the kingdom of God, but they would have been thinking about the nation of Israel as a political nation. So what they would have heard is that before you die, you are going to see the Messiah come and restore the nation of Israel. But that can't possibly also, that also can't possibly be the way that Jesus meant this because we know that by the time these people died, the nation of Israel had not been restored to its position of power. Things actually got worse for the nation of Israel. So what is it that Jesus meant when he said, there are some of you here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? The most reasonable, simple way to understand this is probably the true one in this case, that what we just read in the following 12 verses, which is eight days later after Jesus' statement, is probably what he meant. Uh, we probably just saw him fulfill what he said was gonna happen to some of them before, that they, before they died. Seeing the kingdom of God come in power probably meant uh, not that they saw the kingdom of God fulfilled, but they, before they died, they got a glimpse behind the curtain uh, and they got a view of the king. Peter, James, and John got the opportunity to see the glory of Jesus. Um, and Peter had made this realization in the chapter before, if you remember. Jesus had a question for his disciples back in chapter 8, uh, verse 27. When Jesus said, uh, asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some people say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell nobody about it. Peter was definitely thinking of the book of Malachi, uh, right at the end of the Old Testament, when God ends the Old Testament by promising a day is going to come. Uh, when the, the how does it say it? Let me look it up here quick. When God predict, predicts, uh, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the, on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of your fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Peter understood that Jesus was the Christ. The Christ means the anointed one. He just didn't understand what it was that the Christ was anointed to do. If you remember throughout the gospels, the disciples, as they would see Jesus 
do amazing things, they would, they would repeatedly ask, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They got a glimpse behind the curtain to see the transfigured glory of Jesus and began to get a glimpse of who this is that they've been following. So what did Jesus mean when he said, some of you will, will not die before you see the kingdom of God come in power? Um, these disciples got a glimpse of Jesus the king. Second question is, what did I discover about people in this passage? One thing that I discovered about people in this passage is that people need a clearer view of Jesus. There was apparently some debate going on within the disciples about who this Jesus was that they had left everything to follow. Uh, in the previous passage, when, they were, when Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am, we get three answers. Um, now, I had... Uh, an experience years ago when I was leading the navigators here at UNI, um, where there was a person in our ministry um, who would often share with uh, me and with our staff team concerns that they were having about things that were happening um, in the ministry. And I remember particularly, we had a conversation one year about we had come back from uh, main event, which is our, was our fall student retreat. And this person's concern was that, man, I think we need to tell somebody because... Uh, I think the music at that thing was way too loud. Um, I've been talking to some people, and uh, some of the students have been telling me that it was really distracting for them, and they were having a hard time. I even saw some of them covering their ears. Like, I just think that music was, was way too loud, and I think we need to tell somebody about that. Wow. Well, if, that, if it was bothering that many people, maybe we need to, maybe we need to talk to somebody. Um, and I, kinda, I remember that conversation. And then the next year, we had the same event, and the same conversation came back up, um, I just thought that that music was kind of loud and I've been talking to some of the other students and a bunch of people are saying that uh, that music was too loud and maybe we need to talk. And I started to get in the sense, I think when we say a bunch of people, I think we might be hearing what this person was concerned about and they're just trying to tr sort of bump it off on other people. Um, I don't know if I can back this up, but I'm getting the sense as I read this passage that I'm wondering if when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And his disciples answered, some people say John the Baptist, some people say Elijah, and then Peter made the argument, you're the Christ. I wonder if we're getting a peek into not only what the disciples have been hearing that other people have been saying, but I wonder if we're getting, uh, if, if we got an honest answer, we're hearing the debate within the disciples of who Jesus is. I think there was some debate going on because we see Jesus give three of them a view behind the curtain and we have Peter, James, and John and they're up on a mountain with Jesus and who appears with Jesus? We see Jesus transfigured standing and talking to who? Moses and Elijah. Does that sound familiar? The chapter before, the debate was on some are saying Elijah, and some are saying some of the, one of the prophets. You guys recognize that if Jesus is standing and talking to Elijah and to Moses, well, then Jesus can't possibly be Elijah or Moses, can he? Uh, the, and this is a side note, but I've never understood how did James and John and Peter know that that was Elijah and Moses? I've always wondered that. I, I'm assuming there's no name tags. 
and I also am assuming they don't know what these guys look like. It's not like there's pictures like, oh yeah, I've seen him. Like, like if all of a sudden somebody appeared you know, if Peter was transfigured and then he was standing there talking to like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. Like, I might be able to pick those guys out because I've seen pictures before, but they would have had no idea. And in the context of this, it just seems weird to me that Jesus would like do introductions or something. So that's a side note. I don't know how they knew who these two were, um, but I think it's settling a debate within the disciples of who Jesus was and that he wasn't Elijah, he wasn't one of the prophets. And I also think that this is cluing us up to this in verse 11, because we see one of the disciples then ask the question, well then why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? They're beginning to piece together. You're not Elijah, you're not one of the prophets, but you're something more. People need to see a clearer view of Jesus. <clears throat> and one of our hesitations, honestly, about G- seeing Jesus more, more clearly is that the truth about Jesus can be upsetting. We see in this passage to see who Jesus really is is a terrifying experience. It's terrifying, uh, it's confusing, and it can be offensive. Uh, we saw it in the passage before. As Jesus is being more direct and he's being more honest, Peter hears that Jesus' description is that I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. And this makes Peter angry. Um, It offends him. And he pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Um, We need to see a more clear view of Jesus. But prepare yourself. uh, Because the reality of Jesus is very likely to contradict uh, your opinion about who he is. But I also want to promise you that if you take the time and seek a real clear view of Jesus, it could be upsetting, but the real view of Jesus is better than what you hoped he would be. Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. We need a clearer view of who he really is. And the third question is, what is Jesus asking from me? I don't like to go to the dentist. I used to not mind so much, uh, but then kind of in my late 20s, I don't know what changed, but I started getting cavities. And I started realizing why everybody else didn't want to go to the dentist. Because, I don't know, I consider myself to be a relatively tough person, but there is something about that drill. And there's something about that sound, and like I know that I'm numbed up, but I don't know, between you and me, it always feels to me like the dentist sticks that Novocaine in and then immediately goes to the drill. I just feel like, could you wait just a minute and let it settle in? But that, that sound of the drill, I don't know if I'm causing PTSD for anybody else, but the sound of that drill, and that, I know I can't feel it in my tooth, but I can like feel it in my head, and the sound, and I can feel it drilling it, and I can smell it, and it just freaks me out. I don't like it because it hurts, and it makes me feel uncomfortable. And if I had the choice, I would love to, prefer, I would love to avoid discomfort. I would love to be safe comfortable and in, and in my comfort zone. But this seems to not be the way Jesus looks uh, at suffering. It seems really important to him that he is bringing to, to his disciples' attention that he is going to suffer. Um, he was trying to make this point at the end of chapter eight and he comes back to it at the end of our passage today. 
He said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus seems to not avoid suffering, but he voluntarily and willingly walks into suffering, death, and his eventual resurrection. Not only does he expect it and he walk into it, but he promises it for those who want to follow Jesus. At the end of last chapter, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would love his life will lose it, but whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He voluntarily embraced suffering. He promised the same suffering for his followers, and I just really want to follow Jesus. I think Jesus is asking me to adjust my expectations and to hope not for a life of comfort and avoidance of suffering, but to know that he walked into it voluntarily. He sees it ahead of me in my future, and he's asking me to trust him and voluntarily walk into it myself. He's the king of an eternal kingdom. We need a clear view of him. I need to adjust my expectations. And our last question is, who is one person that I will share what I've learned from this passage? And I gotta share with you two. The first person I need to share this with is I need to share this with myself. Um, I understand that Jesus lived, he suffered, he died, he rose from the grave, and he's coming again. And I understand that he promises me that if I wanna follow him, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna die, and I'm going to rise again. I know that that's true, and I need to continually remind myself of that truth, isn't that right? Every morning, when I set some time uh, aside to spend some time alone with God and his word, I'm trying to get a fresh new sense for the day um, of who Jesus is, that he is glorious and powerful, and I don't understand why what happens to me happens to me, and I also don't understand what's coming in my life, but I know that he sees the suffering that I walk through before I ever walk into it. I know that from this passage that he is intensely powerful and easily able to foresee and stop any tragedy that might come into my life. So I know that if it comes, he has his reasons and he has allowed it to come into my life for his good purposes, uh, if nothing else, so that I can identify with him in the suffering that he walked through. I believe, at least on my best days, that if I saw the world and I saw my life the way he sees it, not only would I understand why he allowed suffering into my life, but if I had his wisdom, I would choose it also for myself. But I need to be reminded of that over and over. So I've got to tell myself. The second person that I want to tell about this, and I've been thinking about this as I've been going through this passage, is that, man, I want to tell my children about this. We started off about talking about my old glory days, high school baseball. Um, I was also a football player. Um, I played quarterback at Mount Vernon High School. Now, don't get too impressed, because my junior year, I led the Mount Vernon Mustangs to a four and five season, uh, and we missed the playoff for the first time in a decade. <laughs> Uh, you might not be surprised to hear that my senior year, I, did, I got beat down as the varsity quarterback by none other than Aaron Riesland, the pitcher that I told you about earlier in the story. 
Um, my senior season, I, I spent a lot of time on the sidelines standing next to Matt Thompson cheering on my teammates. I didn't get on the field much. Um, here's something that I learned later in life in my 20s. My mom told me that during my senior year of high school, she prayed for me while, I was, while, while my football team was playing. And do you know what my mom prayed? It's not as good as it feels like it's gonna be. <laughs> my mom prayed that I wouldn't get to play. <laughs> Because she was so scared that I was going to get hurt. I don't know if Jesus answered those types of prayers, but it seemed like I played a lot my junior year and I didn't get a lot of action my senior year. Um, my mom just wanted nothing more than for me to not get hurt and for me to be safe and comfortable. Um, I don't know if anybody else has, but Katie and I have been watching on Netflix. Uh, recently, we just finished the last season, but there's a show on Netflix called Only Murders in the Building. Uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short have this bizarre murder comedy, but uh, in the last season that we watch, one of the themes, one of the main themes is how a mother will, will stop at nothing to protect her children from pain and suffering. And I can't help but wonder uh, if my safety and my comfort is not, God, is not God's top priority for my children, that their safety and their comfort is not his top priority. I have a good friend from college, her name is Tanya. Um, Tanya married one of my best friends, Ryan. Uh, so you guys know Ryan and Tanya, they used to be part of this church. Um, Ryan and Tanya live in Nebraska now, and they have four kids. And their youngest son, Dawson, has been going through a run the last four years. Um, four years ago, he was beginning to have a lot of health problems. And four years ago, they learned that he was diagnosed with, and bear with me, I'm gonna try to say this, Dawson was diagnosed um, with anti-NMDAR autoimmune enchilitis. Is that anything, Steve? Okay, it's something. <laughs> no, and I don't mean to be silly about this. Uh, this, is a, this is a bad diagnosis for Dawson. He has been struggling and he's been in terrible suffering on and off. He's been on steroids. He's been on multiple kinds of chemotherapy. And it's a kind of diagnosis that there's not a lot of positive hope. Um, and there's a lot of experimenting. And there's a lot of Ryan and Tanya watching their young son just go through hell um, with, with no real hope um, in sight. And I read recently, uh, November 7th, a post that Tanya put on the Caring Bridge for Dawson. And I just want you to, to listen along and hear what it looks like for a mother who trusts the sovereignty and the power of Jesus, her king, and how she relates that to the way she walks through watching the suffering of her son. And I'm gonna end with this. Tanya says, the wild winds and waves are once again thrashing against our fragile lives. Dawson has relapsed. Last spring, Dawson's Colorado team thought it would be wise to taper him off some of the, auto, some of the immunosuppressants um, with the hopes that the experimental chemo he started two years ago would be sufficient by itself. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. In the last couple of months, some of his old, systems have, uh, some of his old symptoms have reappeared. So yesterday at Dawson's neurologist appointment, they decided it was time to enact the con contingency plan for, for relapse. 
He will be hospitalized for 10 to 14 days where he'll have several rounds of plasmapheresis, high doses of IV steroids, and then the Colorado team will consider what previous immunosuppressants he needs to add back to his treatment plan. In all this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, our eyes are still set on our faithful king. Last month, I was reading through Matthew and the account of Peter walking on the water. The story has always had a special place in my heart as we've walked through this journey with Dawson. When Peter fixed his his gaze on Jesus, he was able to do something incredible in the midst of chaos. But as soon as his focus shifted from his savior to the circumstances, he became afraid and began to sink. In the midst of the valleys, this truth has challenged me. Keep your eyes on your savior, Tanya. In the midst of tumultuous winds, look to him for peace and let the chaos remain in the peripheral. Yet this past month, when I read through Matthew, something different struck me. When Peter begins to sink, he cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reaches out and took hold of Peter. We strive to keep the Lord the focus of our hearts, uh, but as hard as we might try, sometimes we sink like Peter. We hurt, we weep, we ask why or how long, and we lament. But in the midst of our lament, he always and immediately reaches out and takes hold of us. We don't always feel it, uh, but when, when I look back over the last four years, his sustaining right hand is clearly upholding us. The Lord's faithfulness in the past gives us great confidence he will do the same today and tomorrow. He will continue to hold us fast. God is good, he is faithful, and he is in control. I want to give my children more than protection, safety, and comfort. I want to model for them how to seek a clear view of the glory of our eternal king so that, he, that they can learn to find in him the courage to face all the trials of this life until he brings them safely into their eternal home and glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, if, if I had my choice... Um, you would be my king who would come and save me from all the pain and trials of this life. God, but we see that that is not the plan that you have for your kingdom on this earth. Um, We know that you modeled for us how to live and to suffer and to die and then to raise from the grave. And we know that that's the exact same formula you have in mind for those, those of us who believe. As we walk through this life, God, would you give us a clearer view of who you are and help us to just be overwhelmed with your glory? Um, Would you give us the courage uh, and the trust in you to face the trials of this life? Uh, And would you help us to set our eyes on you um, and set our hope not in our life being better, but in the day that you're gonna return and bring us into your eternal kingdom? And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.